Hi, it's Laura. Welcome to another episode of Future Tripping. Today I'm talking with Nate Richards. Nate and I have been friends and colleagues for years, and in this conversation, we get to dive into the incredibly important work happening at Athlete Ally. The mission of Athlete Ally is to end homophobia and transphobia in sport. I am really happy we got to spend this time on such a meaningful issue. Just a reminder that we'd love to hear from you, and if you have any questions for us, you can find us on our site at traumastewardship.com and through Instagram at Future Tripping with Laura. Welcome to another episode of Future Tripping. Today, I have the great joy of being in conversation with Nate Richards. Nate, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. You and I have been colleagues a long time. Our friendiversary is coming up next week. We celebrate our friendiversary. And there's many different things that I want to talk with you about. I think what I want to start with for a number of different reasons is the wonderful work you're doing with Athlete Ally. And if you could share with us a little bit about that work, and then we'll go from there. That sounds great. And thanks for the reminder. You're so lovely at uh, acknowledging special occasions, whether that's my nephew's birthday or our friend anniversary. And it's a great reminder uh, to take time to celebrate those important parts of life. Thanks for the introduction uh, and the invitation to talk about Athlete Ally. I have been so proud to have joined the board of this organization uh, back in 2019. I recently became co-chair of the board at the beginning of the year. And Athlete Allies' mission is to work to end homophobia and transphobia in sport and to activate and empower members of the athletic community to use their voices, their platforms for uh, social good. And so the organization was started about 12 years ago. It was born out of the personal experience of our current executive director and founder, Hudson Taylor. He slapped uh, an HRC equality sticker on his wrestling helmet while he was at Maryland and got a tremendous amount of attention for that. Um, uh, Some of it was overwhelmingly positive and some of it was overwhelmingly critical. Uh, And he, as a straight ally, uh, who in addition to being a wrestler, was also part of the theater department uh, at Maryland, uh, was just used to being around queer folks and thought uh, how nice the experience backstage was for for those folks uh, and how challenging it must be in locker rooms. And the story is much more detailed than that. But he and his uh, now wife started the organization 12 years ago uh, to find ways for for allies and athletes alike uh, to support members of the queer community um, and help advocate uh, for human rights for, for all people. That's awesome. I I didn't even, I never knew that backstory. So Nate, because we want these conversations to be as accessible as possible, walk us through what you know to be true in terms of homophobia and transphobia in sports. We have listeners who are extremely fluent in this, and we have listeners who are less so, and we really want these conversations to be for everyone. So what can you share with us in terms of your experience with this and what direction Athlete Ally is going given that? 
Sure. Um, and I'll start with the caveat that I am a very proud and happy and supportive volunteer board member uh, who is, like many people, uh, continuing to learn about these issues. Um, our brilliant and expert staff would be way better suited to talk to the nuance of this. Uh, but I'm happy to sort of share my layperson's perspective on this. Um, first, in part, um, I'll tell a brief story about my introduction to the organization and, and why, when I heard about it, I decided I wanted to get involved. Um, Laura, you and I go way back. You know I am perhaps not the most athletically inclined individual you've ever met. Um, and as a 40-something gay man um, who uh, you know didn't know he was gay when he was in high school um, and, and middle school, uh, but certainly shied away from locker rooms and sports and 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 being around other folks where I thought I might be uh, uncomfortable. Um, you also know my family, and, and maybe uh, eight years ago, my brother took me to a Seattle Sounders match uh, and had a great time in a stadium full of people who were cheering and chanting and, and having a great time um, and, uh, and saw tons of pride flags and flags supporting trans folks and the supporter section holding up banners um, in support of, of me and my community and just felt really welcome there. And, you know, fast forward, I'm a season ticket holder and, and, and happy to be, you know, with and around the Sounders all the time. And I remember thinking that um, uh, watching a, a sporting match on TV where uh, there's some notorious chants um, that are uh, quite homophobic that are often in parts of the sport, thinking if that had been my first visit to a soccer match, I probably wouldn't have gone back. So part of it is thinking about the way that sport can be accessible for participants, for coaches, for administrators, for, for spectators like myself. Um, and when I thought about the work that Athenali was doing, that was a lot of the reason why I decided to get involved. Now, in terms of the overall climate, um, uh, of course, this is very different around the world. Most of our work is focused um, on the domestic U.S. sporting community, although uh, we do work closely with the IOC and FIFA on some international level things. But here in the U.S., what we'll see is that predominantly um, there is an underlying culture uh, in what my colleague refers to as man sports, football, baseball, basketball, um, and hockey, uh, where you don't really see many uh, out and proud athletes who are able to uh, come out and have successful careers uh, on the men's side. Uh, uh, in women's sports, you see plenty of, of folks uh, who are out, um, and that doesn't seem to impact their ability to play or get sponsorship or uh, be successful members of, of, of their of their leagues and teams. So there is sort of um, this overarching issue of, of homophobia uh, in, in sport uh, and folks not feeling comfortable coming out um, the way I might feel very comfortable coming out in my line of work um, in, in the corporate sphere. And then... What really has shifted over the last few years, and some will say this is a backlash to marriage equality, some will say this is um, a loud, vocal minority of people um, who are looking for issues to uh, divide the country politically. Um, so much of the conversation recently has, about, has been about trans inclusion in sport. And what that looks like is... Um, uh, finding one or two examples of professional or, or Olympic or collegiate athletes uh, who 
are transgender who are uh, following all of the rules of their governing bodies uh, for the sport say they need to follow and having some success in sport and folks saying, well, this is an attack on you know fairness in women's sports and this is forcing uh, girls to play with boys and, and whatnot. Um, and that conversation, which really was at the professional and, and collegiate level has now shifted. And much of the conversation is looking at, at at younger folks, uh, you know, kids eight, nine, ten, twelve, who just want to play sports with their friends, and and using this as a wedge issue to to sort of rile people up for political gain um, and prevent you know kids from playing sports that they love with with their friends. Um, so it's way more complicated and nuanced than that. But that is the landscape here in the U.S. that we're that we're looking at. And with how horrendous things currently are, I mean, certainly. Much progress has been made in so many areas, and presently, a lot of horrendous oppression and seeking out of how to persecute trans folks and gay folks across the board and, yes, in sports. How is Athlete Ally triaging that and knowing how to prioritize time and resources I imagine it is feeling quite overwhelming. Uh, that would be fair to say, uh, the overwhelm part. Um, and in part, you know, it's it's interesting when we think about um, the work that we do. Uh, and Athlete Ally is a, you know, a service-based organization, is an education and advocacy organization. Um, and we use terms like triage. Right. That that literally um, uh, that pain and suffering is being inflicted upon communities that we serve and are a part of. Um, and there are finite resources or it feels like there are finite resources and certainly uh, time is finite. So the, so the question of triage, uh, we uh, are in the middle of a strategic planning process where we spend a lot of time talking about uh, prioritizing um, putting out fires versus fire prevention. Uh, how much of our time is spent responding to the hundreds of, of bills around the states in the U.S. Uh, seeking to ban trans folks from participating in sport or even, you know, teaching history uh, or, or being able to say gay in the state of Florida. And, and that really has been the challenge. We feel, and our staff, I think, feels a really strong desire to stand up and speak out at every opportunity um, to give testimony to write amicus briefs, uh, to, to fight all of this legislation. But as some would suggest, and I, I'm inclined to agree, uh, so much of this noise, so much of, of these attacks are, are meant to uh, keep organizations, to keep individuals, to keep communities that have been marginalized uh, on the back foot and defensive, rather than continuing to advocate for full and equal human rights. So one of the things that we wrestle with uh, every, every day is trying to think how we should be balancing our work and prioritizing so that someone, let's say, you know, trans and queer kids in Kansas where uh, horrific and untrue things are being said about them in school board meetings in the state legislature aren't feeling isolated and alone while being able to save some of our energy and resources to the more proactive progressive work 
that we're trying to accomplish. Um, and that finding that balance every day uh, is a real struggle. Um, and a lot of what we're looking at is uh, ways to work in partnership, ways to share the burden and the responsibility of the work that we do. Uh, and I'm really happy to say that the staff has all read Trauma Stewardship and the Age of Overwhelm and some of the techniques recommended in the book uh, and, and via the Trauma Stewardship Institute uh, are helping guide the work that we're, we're, we're doing and the way that we approach the work. So going a bit deeper there, because Nate, I know this really means a lot to you in terms of the causes you're involved in and always wanting to support folks being able to do it sustainably. I mean, you're in a leadership role there on the board, and I know you work closely with the other leadership. I think it can be so painful when there's a sense of urgency to make sure that we are continuing to pace ourselves and to not kind of get into that just panicked place of if i take time to have lunch it means it means harm is going to come to somebody and if i take time to actually take a day off it means greater harm is going to come to more people can you say a bit about how you all are pacing yourselves i think that it's something that agency after organization after institution really struggle with. And the more sense of urgency there is, I think that struggle can be indescribably painful. Yes, it certainly can be a huge challenge and not to overly center myself, but just thinking about my experience as a volunteer board member, you know, this isn't my full-time job. And it's really hard for me when I think about how much work there is to do. Uh, how many conversations I could be having or funds I could be helping to raise or management support I could be offering the staff. It's it's hard to remember that I have a full-time job um, and, uh, and and that this isn't it. And so, uh, you know, that's a challenge for me and, and other board members and volunteers for sure. And for the staff, I know that they are challenged by this. And I know um, I just had the pleasure of spending the weekend here in Seattle with many of them. We were hosting our athlete activism summit with uh, with major sponsors and, and local universities. And they're all just so passionate. And, you know, they definitely have that vibe about them collectively of digging in and, and sticking to the work. One thing I will say, this isn't particularly positive sounding, but I think we've collectively accepted that doing just the triage and the putting out the fires, knowing that there are more people out there uh, who are trying to set fires, uh, that it's easier to break something than it is to build something. We've sort of accepted the idea that we can't win that battle. Uh, we can't win that game playing by the rules as they currently exist. So I think there's a little bit of peace and comfort in the acknowledgement that our objective cannot be to win every one of these individual fights that people continuously keep picking. That's step one. I do think um, our staff and uh, Hudson as executive director is a great leader and recently brought in uh, a wonderful chief of staff uh, by the name of AC Doomlau. AC has a real focus on staff wellness. It's in almost entirely their, you know, their mission. Uh, they do so much for the organization, uh, but first and foremost is ensuring the health and well-being of the staff. And so Practically speaking, that means like, you know, looking at the most competitive benefits and compensation packages, uh, very much focused on flexibility around health and wellness and self-care, 
Uh, we've had staff take necessary leaves of absence recently. Um, we do our, our best to make sure that uh, childcare um, is, is something that isn't an issue for folks. Um, and I think also a really deep acknowledgement, especially around our communications and advocacy staff who are out there reading comments uh, on social media, responding to uh, hateful rhetoric in the news, uh, in society at large, in, in, in legal body, governing bodies, um, a, a real uh, focus on, on finding ways for that, that staff to be able to pace itself. Um, and we're far from perfect at it. It's a regular conversation amongst leadership on what more can we be doing, um, but it's a major focus for the organization. Yeah. Thank you so much, Nate. That's really helpful. And incredibly encouraging. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is, is any guidance you can offer to folks? I'm particularly thinking about younger folks, but this of course can apply to to anybody who are very dedicated to causes who take, you know, working to repair the world very seriously and for whatever reason, it's not their primary full-time job, right? You and I met doing work that was more in alignment with that. And regardless of how dedicated we are to social justice, environmental justice, for whatever reason, sometimes we might find ourselves or make choices to not have that be our full-time work. And there are many people I know who are really hard on themselves around that. And there are many younger people I know who have a lot of angst around that in terms of if that's not what they're doing full-time or, you know, if their identity isn't connected to that on some level, that they might feel that they're selling out, quote-unquote, or they might feel less than... And I'm wondering if you can speak to that because I have really admired the path you've taken and watching how you have gone about this very intentionally, very mindfully. And I'm just wondering if you could share your calculus there and any thoughts you have. Yeah, I think for me, and I'll say this probably to preface every response um, that I'm still learning and I, and I don't hold myself up as, as the model, but um, I do think my experience is, is not uncommon. You know, I, I did get burned out doing corporate work and was seeking greater meaning for how I spent my days and then was seconded to a nonprofit organization where we did some really interesting and, and meaningful work on the front lines that came with its own challenges, as uh, I'm sure many of your listeners uh, can relate to. And one of the things that for me was sort of the most obvious things and, and the thing that stood out a lot uh, was how hard it was for me to pace myself and decouple my love and dedication to the cause from uh, behaviors in terms of scheduling and prioritization of wellness and, and health with, you know, I just wasn't living a full life. It was easy to just say, I'm going to do more of this work, more of this work, more of this work. And we tried a lot of ways uh, with my then manager and colleague and, and outside advisors, uh, yourself included, to find creative strategies to make the work more sustainable for me. But ultimately, one of the things I, I realized and recognized was we do live in a 
capitalist society. I had bills to pay, rent to pay at the time. Now I have a mortgage. I don't know if that's good news or bad news. And decoupling my financial well-being from work that I was doing that was really meaningful, but also pushing some of the not enough buttons, never give enough time, never you know uh, accomplish enough buttons, was really important. The idea that if a job wasn't serving me well, whether that was in the corporate world, like I'm doing now and did before, or in social justice, if the job wasn't serving me well, and I wasn't able to take care of my family, my personal needs, my financial needs, my obligations to everything else outside of the work, having that be tied to a cause that I cared so deeply about would make it really impossible for me to have proper objectivity about you know the benefits of that as a, as a career. So I chose to move myself back into the corporate world. I love the job I have. I love the company I work for, the people I work with. But I've also had the experience of leaving that job multiple times. And it was a lot easier to leave that corporate job uh, than it was the social justice work. And so being able to say, okay, cool, bills are paid, (laughs) rent is paid, Um, this work is being done over here, and then I'm going to use any additional resources and bandwidth I have to volunteer my time in the social justice space, that was what worked for me. And I think the other part of it that just today I'm reminded of is that I also, and this is in part because of the nature of the work I do during the day, but I think it's true in any role that you're in, is I get to bring what I know about social justice and progressive movements to my place of work, to my colleagues, to the communities and relationships I work with there. And so for me, even though, as as you said, my current work isn't centered on that, uh, that doesn't mean that I can't be my whole self and be advocating for uh, for justice and truth and and supporting colleagues and friends and vendors and clients uh, in ways that are still meaningful to me. Yeah, thank you so much, Nate. Connected to that, you have a mixed race identity. You're Jamaican and English and gay, as you've shared. And I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about how intentional you have to be given everything that's unfolding, let's just say, in the United States right now, and your desire, as you said, to live a full life, to make sure that you have time for yourself, that you have time for your loved ones, that you have time for your health, even as your identity is one in which there are countless attacks on and we could dedicate all of our time just trying to work for those causes, which are obviously deeply personal. And then you're also doing this work with athlete allies. So can you talk a bit in terms of how personally you tend to that? Yeah, I, I think that's a, a great question. And it, it is a challenge. It's a constant effort. I think maybe one of the kind of single most poignant recent memories I have in my day job, part of my portfolio at my job is to be responsible for both our philanthropic partnerships um, and uh, I uh, oversee our diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And most of that started as it did with a lot of organizations or ramped up um, uh, during 2020 uh, with the murder of of George Floyd and pretty universal demand for activity and activation after that. And I remember kind of, uh, unfortunately, that summer, uh, there were just so many more instances of state violence against black and brown folks in the country. 
Um, uh, and I remember just feeling so tired by that as an individual, individual, right? A, a man of color, a queer man of color, um, and an immigrant <laughs> dealing with all those things. And I got to work on Monday, just feeling completely drained, having my own personal experience, and then realizing halfway through the day that I was also responsible for the organization's response and to create and, and, and shepherd space for all of my colleagues and just thought, I don't really, I'm not up for it. Um, so the first thing I did was give myself a break, give myself permission to be a human being that has his own reactions to what's going on in the world. Um, and then to really try to pace myself. A big part of that is kind of setting expectations that are manageable, uh, not being attached to outcomes, and really focusing on, well, what is it that I can do to support uh, my community, my colleagues, my peers, um, without uh, breaking myself down um, or my team down, knowing that we cannot do all things. We cannot put out all the fires um, or whack all the moles at once. Um, and so that was sort of a really kind of uh, specific time in my, my career where I realized that pacing was, was very important. Um, about that time, I took some advice that I'd been given years before, and I started to disengage myself from many forms of social media. I didn't sort of shut down across the board, but I realized a lot of the individual platforms weren't serving me well. Um, and I also, and this one is, 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 makes me feel a little guilty to admit, I sort of disengaged from a lot of the news. Um, I found that there was so much of it and um, I wanted to be aware about everything going on in every corner of the world, affecting every group of people. Um, and I realized that the amount of time and energy it would take just to even keep up with a fraction of it was taking away from my ability to actually do some things about the problems right in front of me. And to your point, actually take care of myself and live a worthwhile and sustainable life. So disengaging from too many inputs was a major part of how I've been able to kind of continue doing this work. And, you know, sometimes that's literally turning off the news or, or not looking at Twitter for a day or, or indefinitely. And then other times it's been around kind of building strategies where I have folks who are really dialed into parts of the social justice world. And I know that if something is absolutely on fire over here, that they're going to let me know or be a trusted source. And so that's actually one of the things that in any of the organizations I partner with, I've sort of encouraged folks to do is to kind of split up and, and and take turns being on call and reading the news or dealing with the comments or or whatever it is. But not everybody has to be completely embedded in everything 24-7, 365. That's just not sustainable in, in my experience. So a lot of it has been around sort of trying to regulate the inputs. And then, you know, in terms of my own identity and intersection of different, you know, oppressed or marginalized groups that I'm maybe a member of, I think one thing that's been really crucial to me is my gratitude practice with all of the challenges I might face as a black and brown immigrant, multiracial, multi-ethnic queer guy that's in his middle age now. I'm still tremendously privileged. I have so many opportunities that uh, have been presented to me, such a sense of physical safety and security in the world that many folks don't have, never had to worry about hunger or being unhoused. And so I try to remember all of the many things that are going well for me, for my family, for my friends, and keep some perspective about um, you know where, where to put my time and attention and focus in, in trying to help other people.
That's really beautiful, Nate. Thank you so much for sharing that. I want to connect what you're saying there to something I was really struck by when we had dinner a while back. We were talking about the Men's World Cup being in Qatar, and I was asking you, knowing what a devoted soccer fan you are, your thoughts about that and any, you know, internal struggle that's there in terms of watching it, in terms of going to Qatar. And you were so clear in how you responded about the choices you make in where you go, where you don't go, both, you know, sports, but also just traveling in general. And I'm wondering if you could share any of your thoughts there, because I think it's something I imagine is going to become more and more relevant. I'm not sure if I can be as clear as I was back then, but certainly in in looking back on on that, again, just coming off the conversation about privilege, uh, as part of my job, some of what we do at my organization is is sports marketing. A lot of our executives are huge sports fans and either professionally or or personally take time to travel to some major sporting events. And I had an invitation uh, both to work on a client engagement and to be a guest to go watch you know, the men's World Cup uh, in, in Doha. And for me, um, as, as someone who sort of followed the story of the human rights abuses and the corruption involved in that bid and, and, and the preparing for, for that competition, and also knowing the climate in that region not being super hospitable to folks like me, folks of my background, and, and, and folks who are my comrades and brothers and sisters and allies, for me, it was an easy choice to opt out of participating and, and attending that particular event, despite it being, you know, for, for many folks, a once in a lifetime opportunity. At the same time, and this is a, a challenge for lots of folks, is in my job, since I'm, I'm not the boss, uh, I don't get to pick and choose all of the projects I work on and, and what I'm affiliated with. And so still helped put that program together, tried to make it as thoughtful um, and accessible for folks as possible, tried to make sure we were engaging with attendees in a way that was going to keep them safe and, and, and having a good time. But again, for me personally, you know, attending wasn't it. I was significantly more focused on my lifelong dream of going to Australia and New Zealand, um, where the Women's World Cup kicks off in, in a month. And I'm really excited to say I'm, I'm going on, on that trip. But I think one of the things that sort of this raises, and it's a, a new topic that I'm learning more about, they're calling it sports washing, organizations, governments with checkered histories, looking to host mega sporting events or, or by teams or leagues, because with that comes a, a baked in audience. And I mean, I think the first thing I would say respectfully as you know a proud and mostly happy citizen of the United States uh, our own personal history is checkered and far from perfect and so when we're talking about you know these other countries and these other locations where women can't do this or uh, there are, are are laws against lgbtqia folks you know we need to also be mindful and look in the mirror and say everything is not right here either but i think it it does speak a lot to the idea of how powerful sport is and that's one of the things that has made athlete ally successful right sport is one of the things sport entertainment music food these things that across culture and language and geography people either can have in common or share and enjoy when they don't have the same tastes and whatnot 
and there are very few things as universally accepted uh, as as cheering on your team uh, or having good healthy competition against another team. Uh, and soccer, as you know, the world's game is is probably the biggest platform for that. And so the idea that sporting events that athletes are a way to connect with a really wide audience is, is a lot of what motivates the work Athlete Ally does. Um, it's a lot about the way we think about individual programs. So for example, one of the things that the organization does is called our Athletic Equality Index. It's a assessment of most of the major universities in the United States on a set of criteria around how inclusive and welcoming their sports policies are. That looks like things like do they have gender neutral bathrooms in in their facilities? Do they have an anti discrimination policy? Do they proactively do any training uh, on gender issues for coaches for players? And it ranks schools on a scale of zero to one hundred about how accessible and inclusive they are. And increasingly, more and more athletes, whether they're queer identified or or allies, are looking at that when considering what programs they want to play for and, and, and what colleges they want to go to. And similarly, as a fan, looking at what schools, what leagues, what teams are creating environments that are inclusive and welcoming to all people, that's where I want to spend my time and my, my dollars as a spectator. And the hope is, is that increasingly more and more leagues and teams and athletes and coaches uh, will lead proactively on these issues. You know, there's often this kind of backlash when someone speaks up about shut up and dribble or you know you're an entertainer stay in your lane the truth is is that everyone has a voice and should be able to use their platforms to speak for the causes that, that matter for them and so a lot of the work we do is focused on encouraging athletes at all levels to be able to use their platforms uh, to speak up for what they believe in and, and make environments more inclusive for everyone what an incredible resource and that can be found on the athlete allies website yeah you can learn more about athlete ally at athleteally.org uh, information about ways that you can get involved um, at any level. You can learn about our ambassadors. We've got hundreds of, of athlete ambassadors, Olympians, Paralympians, collegiate athletes, professional athletes, former athletes that are involved that are out there. Tons of ways for individual uh, students, uh, universities to get involved with our chapter program, for adults to get involved if they've got kids who are playing sports or they're coaching. Uh, and then for anyone who wants to support the cause, plenty of, of other activations for folks to get involved as well. You read my mind. I wanted to ask you for folks who wanted to support the work of Athlete Ally and also knowing that many of our listeners are deeply involved in this issue and some might not have any idea how to support the larger issue. So anything more you can share about that in terms of how to be of support to Athlete Ally and thoughts you have for folks who might not currently be involved in these issues but who would like to do something what are your thoughts there in terms of how to be most impactful? Sure. Well, certainly the website has a ton of information for folks who are athletes or sports adjacent on, on ways to get involved, to sign up, to work with us. Um, we've recently started a membership program. We have monthly activations where we invite anybody from any walk of life, any age, any experience uh, to get involved and to partner with us in some meaningful ways. So for example, a month ago, uh, for folks who are socially media inclined and literate, we were looking at all of the athletes who were out supporting progressive policies and inclusive policies and putting, you know, 
their necks out there and, and dealing with hate speech and comments and, and whatnot. And we had a, kind of an, an activation over the course of an evening uh, where folks went and, and got in the comments or DM'd or tweeted them and thanked them for their support. We recently had a great conversation with Representative Pramila Jayapal about her work uh, on these issues and and provided a ton of information on how folks can support her transgender bill of rights. And so there's ways that you can get involved politically if you want to. And then one of the overarching things that Athlete Ally is really focused on is this idea of allyship. And so while I'm a member of the LGBTQIA plus community, I don't identify as as trans, I'm mindful that women uh, and, and folks from other minority backgrounds have a harder time than I do in certain spaces. And so in addition to looking for folks to be allies to our kind of queer community, uh, there's also a lot of education on how we can be allies to each other and keeping the sort of intersectional lens close at hand, how we can be allies to other organizations um, that are working in, in other spaces. And so some of that looks like allyship to the folks who are fighting for reproductive freedom for all women, uh, folks who are on the front lines fighting for racial and economic justice for immigrant rights. And so even though our focus is really on ending homophobia and transphobia in sport, a lot of the programming, a lot of the education we have is on ways to show up. Uh, and be good, thoughtful, active, non-performative allies. And there are resources online for folks who want to learn more about doing that. Great. Thank you so much, Nate. Second to last question. I know this is looping back to something we talked a bit about earlier, but I think something that I really admire in terms of your career thus far is the power of being able to change one's mind in terms of how we spend our time. And I think that there can, unfortunately, even though things are really shifted here in many ways, but I do think sometimes there can be some stigma attached to leaving jobs, leaving careers, leaving fields. And I'm wondering if you can speak to how you made those choices to prioritize health, prioritize well-being, prioritize, you know, one of the things I love that Pema Chodron says is death is certain, your time of death is uncertain, how do you want to spend your time? And prioritizing that above what might be seen by some as superficial success. Anything you want to share there, again, for anyone, and I certainly have young adults in mind for this in terms of helping them know that they can always change their mind with how they're spending their time. Yeah, I think it's such a powerful lesson. I think, and this is maybe going to sound a little ageist, the young folks in my organization feel pretty comfortable with embracing change. But I know that that doesn't mean everybody. And then there's sort of old timers like you and me who, you know, the idea that you'd have a job and you might stay in it forever um, or, or, or maybe change careers once or twice. And, and that was it was sort of that was the gold standard. And And I think for me, just being mindful of how much as individual human beings we we change and and grow. It's hard to imagine that something that you decided to do. I started my working for the current company I work for when I was a 19 year old intern in college. Uh, and even though I've left and found my way back, you know, it's it's impossible for me to think that decisions I made about where I was gonna, you know, go and stuff letters uh, for a couple hours a week back in. 2001 is necessarily the place that's going to serve me well in a different phase of my life where, you know, I've got commitments to loved ones and animals and, and organizations and things like that. And so I think one thing, and I, I learned this 
from, from you and our early work together is the importance of having a plan B. And as someone who's a manager of other people and tries to coach other people, um, you know, as, a, as an employer, I never really want my, my people, especially, you know, the top performers to, to spend a lot of time thinking about their plan B and, and going off and doing something else. But I still always encourage them to have one. You know, I, I want to make it so that what I'm doing as a manager and our organization is doing is trying to retain folks and let them continue growing in our organization. But at the same time, I will always tell them that having a backup plan, having an alternative can be terribly freeing. I have changed careers and jobs a little bit, but not not necessarily more than, than the average person does. But there's never been a time in my life since I sort of you know uh, learned this and, and adopted it as a best practice, I haven't had sort of my exit plan close at hand. And what that allows me to do is keep some perspective, uh, to not feel trapped by circumstances, to not feel put upon, and just really being mindful that when you have a rough day or an overwhelming day, knowing that it's my choice to, to be here and to show up and try to bring my A game every day, that's my choice. And if this work isn't serving me well, or this organization isn't serving me well, uh, or my priorities have shifted in some way, that there are always other things that I can I can do and other things I can spend my time on. And that has been incredibly freeing. And I always encourage folks to have their finger on the pulse of what they might do next. And as much as I you know, work for corporate America and uh, I'm, I'm happy with the organization I'm with, you know, I'm, I'm also mindful that economic circumstances can change. And as much loyalty as you have to a business or an organization, even in the nonprofit space, you know, funding shifts, that organization may not always be there for you. I've been let down by organizations uh, in the past. And so I think it's really important to remember that uh, it's great if you love where you are to work and you're passionate about uh, what you're doing. It's great if you love your colleagues and enjoy spending time with them. And it's also okay if you have a job for the sake of paying your bills and you want to show up and do your best while you're there. And then when you leave and you're not on the clock, that you're on your own time, you're doing your own things. You know, lots of folks say corporations aren't going to love you back. And I think there's exceptions. I think there's, there's organizations where collectively a group of people can be really meaningful to each other. And that's been my experience where I work, but I'm, I'm mindful that, you know, the money isn't there to pay me or priority shift, you know, <laughs> then I'll be out of a job. And so it's always good to have the plan B for that reason. hundred percent. Yeah. Thank you so much. Last question. Something we always ask our guests. We want to offer our listeners concrete strategies and wondering if you'd be willing to share three practices that you engage that you have found to be really reliable and helpful for yourself. Yeah, I, I wish I could say that I, I exercise all these as consistently as I as I would like to. But if I give myself a moment to think about a need to recenter, there are many things that come to mind, but I'll say that these are maybe my top three. The first I mentioned before was that gratitude practice. I have alarm set on my phone a couple times a day to remind me. Um, at this stage, having worked on it for 10 years, I don't really need that reminder, for the most part, when something <laughs> bad is occurring, feels like the world is after me, my mind immediately tries to find some positive in it. What lesson is it trying to teach me? What lesson am I learning? Uh, what's the complete opposite of this that you know I spend most of my time not feeling this way? I should be grateful for that. A very wise woman once gave me the example of of asking yourself, you know, well, uh, you know, do you have head lice? Because if you don't have head lice, you've got at least that thing to be grateful for, um, and that often comes to mind. 
find uh, and allows me to find some humor in, in, in situations. I think the second thing that I do, which is certainly a privilege and not necessarily accessible to everybody at all times, is I'm really fortunate that my partner in crime, Winston, my uh, eight-year-old French bulldog, is uh, a great sense of support and continuity. There is I say nothing like the unconditional love of a dog, but generally spending time with animals in and around, I, I find to be tremendously therapeutic. I love people, but I'm also an introvert and they are exhausting and I never get tired of spending time uh, with my dogs or out in the yard with the chickens or uh, a new hobby I've taken up in the last couple of years as a uh, amateur beekeeper, despite the fact that they don't always <laughs> love me back and, and I've got a few stings to show for it. I love spending time uh, out doing that. And then the the third thing, which is fairly similar, is I'm, again, very fortunate that we have an acre of land here uh, in Washington State, and uh, everyone in my family loves to garden. Uh, spending time in nature, regardless of the weather, uh, whether you're getting your hands dirty in the soil, planting fruits and vegetables, or if you are just remarking at the beauty of nature that is around us, I was really fortunate to go on a lovely trip with a dear friend to Rome last November. And we went to the Borghese Gallery and saw these incredible uh, works of art, just absolutely stunning paintings and sculptures. And that left a huge impression on me. Uh, but the thing I remember most of the, uh, from that day is going outside, sitting on a bench in the garden, staring up and seeing these trees that I couldn't even describe. They looked like they were from Avatar or some other planet, but just staring up and watching the sunlight reflect through them and the sky and the birds flying overhead. And as beautiful as all of that art was, and it really was, that moment of peace and tranquility, staring at the trees and looking at the kind of fractal patterns that they made and whatnot was really calming and, and centering while in the midi middle of this bustling city of Rome, the eternal city. So those would be my, my top three. And I'm going to give you a fourth because it's, it's a recommendation I'm always given by my dearest colleagues is to get outside, to get on a treadmill, to get on a bike, to exercise, to get your heart rate up. Um, I think a lot about how much tension and energy I hold in my body and how much I think all of us do. So the ability to sort of get that out in a constructive way seems like a, a good bonus recommendation I would give to your listeners. Nate, I'm so grateful for our friendship. I'm so grateful for getting to be your colleague. And I really, really appreciate you taking the time to come on today and share everything you have with us. And we'll make sure to link to Athlete Ally and endless gratitude for the work you're doing there, of course, and for your colleagues there. And just know how much I appreciate you spending this time with us. So thank you so much. Thanks for this opportunity. Thanks for all of the many, many lessons that you've shared with me over the years that I now get to bring to bear on the work that I'm doing and share with others. And then also, as you always do, um, you know, there's many times when I'm, I'm quoting the book or quoting you, and you're in fact quoting some, some other elder expert. And so much deep appreciation to you for being a teacher and a steward, um, and for sharing the wisdom uh, of, of the many folks that you've learned from over the years as well. So thanks for that and this opportunity to chat with you. Our podcast, Future Tripping, is a Trauma Stewardship Institute production. I, Laura, am your host and producer. Our incredible executive producer and sound engineer is Olivia P. Sunier, without whom this podcast would not be possible. It's edited and mixed by Tom Stiles, with original music by Cameron DeVore. Our graphic designer is Evie Burroughs-White. 
Thank you for downloading and subscribing. And as always, please give us a holler with any questions or suggestions. We can be found at traumastewardship.com and on Instagram at Future Tripping with Laura. There you can find both an email and phone number where you can ask your questions of our upcoming guests. I am grateful you joined us. Please remember, however your overwhelm is feeling today, you're not alone. You're in good company, and I look forward to being with you here on Future Tripping again next week. Mm-hmm.